I'm Nathan Johnson, and welcome to episode number 23 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I am very excited, for today we are going to be diving in and doing a study of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's dive in. Now, if you've been following the podcast, for the last three episodes, we've been talking about the three steps or the three questions to ask every time you study the Bible. Now, what I want to do today is I want to give a quick overview of those three steps, those three questions, and then apply that into an example in Acts chapter 1. Now, if you listen to the previous episode, I encouraged you to dive into Acts chapter 1 verse 8, make some observations, come into to an interpretation, and then apply it into your life. But I kind of want to do that all in one episode so you can see how these three questions interact and play together. So, for a quick review, step number one in a good Bible study system is to ask the question, what does the text say? And again, the purpose of this question is to look for observations. Now, I'm not giving interpretation. I'm not trying to figure out how this passage applies to my life. I'm merely asking, what is going on in the passage? What what do I see happening in the text? Now, as I begin to do that, and again, the majority of my time is going to be spent here in the observation stage. But as I begin to do that, I'm going to begin to ask the question, what does this text mean? Now, I'm not asking what did the text mean to me, but what was the author saying to his original audience? So for our example in the book of Acts, what was Jesus saying to his disciples? Jesus is the speaker. He's communicating something to his disciples. What was he trying to get them to understand? And you can also ask the question, Luke, as the author of the book of Acts, what is he trying to convey or what is he trying to say by placing this particular account in the place that he does? Now, as I'm making these observations and I'm asking the question, what does this mean to the original audience? What begins to happen is that there's this nugget, a concept, a a gold truth, if you will, that begins to bubble forth. Now, once I have the concept, once I figure out what that passage is actually saying in its appropriate context to the original audience, then and only then can I come to the third question, which is what does it mean? Now, this is all about application. And I'm taking that truth and I'm taking that concept and I'm applying it into my personal life. So once you have those three questions in your mind, let's bring all of that and come into Acts chapter 1 and see how those three questions can work in this example. Now, we're primarily focusing on Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now, let me just read this so it's just fresh in our mind. It's a passage that many of us know and likely have memorized. Jesus is about to ascend. In fact, these are the last words that he speaks, according to Luke, right before he ascends into heaven. And he gathers his disciples together and listen to what he says. He says in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's begin the observation stage and ask the question, What does this text say? Now, obviously, it's important to ask that question of what does it say, not only in this particular passage, but also in light of the context of what surrounds the passage. Now, you'll notice if you go up to verse 1 that Luke is introducing the book and he's saying the fact that he wrote this to Theophilus and it's the, he mentions his former account, which would have been the book of Luke. 
And as he begins to walk through this, he mentions the fact that here's Jesus, he's alive, and he presents himself for 40 solid days with infallible proofs, verse 3. Now, in verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So get the context. Uh, here's Jesus. He just rose from the dead. And for 40 solid days, he's been walking through uh, the truth. He's been walking through the scriptures. He's been revealing himself as the risen Messiah. And here he is. He's about to ascend into heaven. And he gathers the disciples together. And uh, likely, yeah, it was probably been the 11 disciples. Because uh, we realize that Judas had hung himself by this point. And likely, uh, we learn later in the Pentecost scene, there's 120 in the upper room. Likely, some of those probably showed up at this scene. But what we know is that here's this gathering of disciples and Jesus brings them together and he says, hey, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And obviously he's speaking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which comes in Acts chapter 2. Now, as you get into verse 6, it's very interesting because as they have come together, the disciples ask Jesus a question and they ask him this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's really important to see this in light of the historical context or the cultural context. Uh, you recognize that for a good Jew, uh, the mindset of what the coming Messiah was going to look like uh, was a conquering Messiah. In fact, the idea was is uh, the Messiah was going to show up and he was going to march down to Rome and kick Caesar off the throne. And, and he was going to reestablish Israel as a prime force of the day. Uh, it's going to be the glory days like David and Solomon. And so obviously the disciples... I look at this resurrected Christ and say, hey, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Hey, Jesus, are you going to march down to Rome, kick Caesar off his throne and establish your kingdom? Now, look at how Jesus responds in verse number seven. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority. And what's interesting is he's, he's giving you a negative response. In other words, he's saying, hey, let, hey, don't let this be your focus. I know you're asking, hey, when's the restoration coming? Hey, that is not to be your focus. And he's articulating a response in the negative. Now, as you move into verse 8, he gives you the contrast of that or the positive, if you will. Now, we know that because verse 8, so this is an observation, verse 8 starts with the word but. And obviously, but is a uh, con uh, conjunction. It's a contrasting conjunction, meaning it's taking one thought over here and saying, hey, it is dissimilar or it's contrasted to this thought over here. So get, get the context. The disciples come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Hey, Jesus, come on. They just crucified you and you just rose from the dead. So, I mean, <laughs> what are they going to do? Try to crucify you twice? I mean, how are they going to kill a dead man? I mean, Jesus, you just, whoa, you're in your power. You're in your authority. Why don't you at this time? I mean, if we thought you were the Messiah before, whoa, do we think you're the Messiah now? Jesus, why don't you march down to Rome, kick Caesar off his throne, and establish establish the kingdom of Israel? It's, it's now the time, Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, 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 that is not to be your focus. But, verse 8, let me tell you what your focus is supposed to be. And he declares this powerful verse. Uh, some other interesting observations that you'll find in verse 8. Uh, you recognize that Jesus is speaking. 
So obviously a good observation is the fact that, well, geez, in fact, these are the last words of Jesus before he ascends. So, hey, if, if this was the, the last word spoken, obviously they must be really important as recorded by Luke here in the book of Acts. Now, we also know that the audience of who he's speaking to is the disciples. And so obviously that becomes important because, hey, that gives us a context, a, a framework for who he's speaking to. And of course, if we had some time, we could, we could walk through some of the information that we know about each of the disciples and, and uh, what do we know about them and the backgrounds and, and hey, they were fishermen and, and uh, Jesus chose them and they walked with Jesus for three years and, and, uh, and hey, they saw the ministries and, and we know that they're Jewish. And so obviously that's coming to play in the context of this particular passage. Now, something else you'll notice is that the word you shows up three times in this passage. It says that you shall receive power. The Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Now, as you progress forward here, that main subject, you, uh, something's happening. It says you shall receive power. Uh, if I was to look up that word shall receive uh, in the Greek, uh, I learned that it's a future indicative. Now, hang tight. If, if you're like, whoa, what does that even mean? I don't even know. That's Greek to me. Well, hey, that, that's fine. That's fine. But if you're to open Blue Letter Bible uh, on, on the website and look up this word, it would say it's a future indicative. And of course, you can click on that and explain what it is. And simply, it's a statement of fact that's going to happen in the future. And it obviously makes sense. If the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, it's a future tense. They have not yet experienced the promise of the Father that, he, uh, that Jesus makes common of in verse 4. But he says, hey, you shall receive power. It's a simple statement of fact. This is not... Uh, maybe, maybe not. This is, hey guys, I'm telling you, you will receive this. And uh, it, it indicates that I'm going to actually be given something because I'm going to be receiving it. So Jesus stands up and says, "Woo, something's coming. You're going to be given something. And what is it that he is giving? Well, it's the word power. Now, the Greek word for the word power is the word dunamis, which has this idea of strength. It has the idea of power. It has the idea of ability. Now, we're not talking physical power, and the reason we know that is because it's when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so, as I'm making observations about this idea of power, it, it doesn't mean I have a zap gun and I can zap you. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that I have a strength and might and power in that sense. Hey, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he will be my power. So, obviously, he's referring to some sort of a spiritual power because it's all connected with this idea of the Holy Spirit. When we look at this idea of you shall receive power, the whole condition of that is when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So a good observation then is, well, obviously I won't receive the power unless the Holy Spirit has come. And if the Holy Spirit comes, obviously the result of that is, woo, power. And again, we're not talking zap kind of stuff. This isn't, oh, overwhelming strength kind of things. This is Oh, he is, he is going to be, he's going to somehow resource and I'm going to receive, I'm going to have some power. And, and, and again, this is just a cause and effect relationship thing uh, that I don't receive power unless he comes. And if he comes, whoo, I receive power, uh, which brings up the question of uh, who is the Holy Spirit? And of course you can get in a whole study on just the Holy Spirit and you can walk through uh, the book of John primarily has a lot of great stuff on the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can walk through the rest of the Gospels. You can walk through Paul's letters and learn a lot about the Holy Spirit. And, and, and granted, we're not, we're not going to do that now. 
But if you would do that, that, that brings emphasis, it brings content, it brings an understanding to who this character is in our passage. And you could say, well, I, I know about the Holy Spirit. I, I've heard it. I, I've heard of him. Well, that's great. But do you know his heart and do you know his character and do you know his nature? Now, that would be helpful to understand in the, in the passage. But for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to have some presumption that you understand the Holy Spirit's uh, the third member of the Trinity. Uh, it is God. It's, it's not like there's three gods. There's not separate pieces of God. Uh, so we are talking about God. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 16 that it's the spirit of truth and he is the truth. So obviously this is the spirit of Jesus. And so Jesus is looking at the disciples saying, "Woo! when the Holy Spirit, when my spirit, God himself just comes and indwells you, he is going to resource, he's going to enable, he's going to pull off something in your life. And we're calling that power. And of course, it'd be fun if you do a word study of power all throughout the, the book of Acts. And what you'd find is a lot of times that word power, dunamis, is translated mighty works, it's translated power, it's translated virtue. Uh, for example, the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and wow, he does mighty works, uh, which is the whole idea of miracles and wonders and signs. And, and you could say, woo, do I get all that? I don't know, maybe. But it seems like the emphasis here is not so much on Ooh, miracles and wonders and signs, mighty deeds, that kind of stuff. It seems like the emphasis of this whole passage is, oh, the enablement, the power, the resource of the Holy Spirit. In other words, here you are, you're weak. Here you are, you're anemic. Uh, here you are, disciples, and, and you can't really do what I'm calling you to do. But man, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to resource and enable this thing to take place. You will receive power. Mm, what a great idea. Now, he continues on in the verse, and he says another, you shall be. And in this case, you shall be witnesses. Now, again, when you look that up, you find out in the Greek that it's a future indicative. The exact same thing as you shall receive power. So, again, this is a statement of fact. And it seems like the order is important. So, as I'm, as I'm stepping back and looking and just making observations of what's going on in the passage... Isn't it interesting that you shall receive power comes before you shall be witnesses? And hey, that makes sense to you because, hey, I cannot properly be a witness unless he has sourced me, unless the Holy Spirit has come and enabled me, unless he's come in and he's, he's resourcing my life. Now, again, something else that's interesting to note is that the receive power and you shall be witnesses is really centered around the idea of when the Holy Spirit has come. So obviously the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life is that you will receive power, which is enabling this idea of you shall be witnesses. Now, if you were to look up this word for witness in the Greek, it's where we get the word martyr. Now, when you hear martyr, my guess is you probably think of, uh, oh, someone who has died for their faith. Woo, they're a martyr. And uh, yeah, that's true. But what's interesting is when you get to a biblical idea of martyr, you realize that you can be a martyr and never die for your faith. See, the idea of a martyr here uh, is the concept that you are living, you are speaking, uh, you represent something to such a degree that you are willing to die before you would change that. Uh, for, for example, uh, and let's just take the faith idea. Here I am, I'm embracing Jesus and I'm madly in love with Jesus and I'm proclaiming the gospel. And I'm going to live on that thing. I'm, hey, I'm not going to be pushed over. I am not budging. In fact, the only way I'm ever going to change is, well, I'm not going to change. So if you don't want to hear it, you're going to have to get rid of me. See, that's, that's our idea of martyr. But what's fun is you can do that and never be killed for your faith. 
See, what's interesting about the life of a martyr is that it's someone who is so strong in something that it's really putting pressure upon the world around them. Uh, let me give you a simple, probably a cheesy illustration. Uh, once in a while, I'll travel and, and I'll speak around the country and it's, it's, it's kind of fun. I'll, I'll go and I'll get there early and I'm ready to go. And inevitably, at some point during the weekend or whatever, someone will come up and say, hey, would you like some coffee? Now, I don't drink coffee. I'm not against it, but I, I just don't drink it. And so I politely just say, no, thank you. I, I, don't, I don't drink it. And it's really funny. The moment I say, hey, I don't, I don't drink it, it's just like it puts pressure on the individual. And more often than not, the response is, well, well, I mean, I mean, I don't drink a whole lot. You know, I just, you know, maybe a pot or two a day. I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not addicted. I'm not addicted. And of course, you know, I look at him and it's like, <laughs> drink all you want. It doesn't matter. I, I don't care. You know, hey, it's just, it's, it's coffee or whatever. But it's interesting that because I'm standing up saying, I just don't drink this stuff. It's putting pressure. Now, again, that's a cheesy illustration, but what would it look like if, Someone got so wrapped up in Jesus that, man, they, they were immovable in the reality of the word and the cross and the gospel and the, the intimacy with Jesus, that it literally began to put pressure upon the world around them. Jim Elliott said, I want to be a decision man. I, I really want to bring people to a decision that when someone comes and encounters my life, it literally forces a decision in their life. Are they going to turn and embrace Jesus or are they going to live and embrace their flesh? And again, the reason we have this idea of martyrdom in terms of death is because, hey, if they're not going to embrace Jesus, then the only way that they can get rid of that pressure, of that voice, that, that declaration that's coming out of someone's life is to either, again, buy into it and embrace Jesus or silence it, which often would result in death. So get what Jesus is saying here. He, look, he's looking at the disciples saying, wow, the Holy Spirit is coming. Verse four, hey, stay in Jerusalem. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit's coming. The promise of the Father is about to be here. And hey, when he comes, you will receive power. I promise you, it's a simple statement of fact. He's going to come in and he's going to enable. He's going to resource. He is going to be your power. But not only that, Jesus says, simple statement of fact, you shall be witnesses. Hey, your life is going to be so full of this Holy Spirit that it's going to begin to put pressure upon the world around you. And yes, you may die for that. But even if you don't die, the reality is what I'm calling you to as my disciples in this world is that your life, your words, your message, you're very, you're just putting pressure upon the world around you. So the way that you live, the way that you talk, what you talk about, it is all putting pressure. Why? Because you are my witness. Now, he moves on from there and he gives some content to what the witness is. He says, you shall be witnesses to me or unto me, uh, which shows the ownership of the witness. Uh, in other words, it, it contains, it has this idea of ambassadorship. In other words, I'm not just, not just going to go out and, and just be a witness and just yell a bunch of things. The idea is, is that I'm a witness unto Jesus, that I am pointing everybody unto Jesus uh, that, that here you are, you're my disciples and everything that you're saying, everything that you're doing is literally unto me. And you're pointing to me, says Jesus. Now he moves on in the verse and he gives location and he gives, uh, several places. He says, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if I'm stepping back and doing observations, uh, again, I would say, well, what do I know about Jerusalem? Well, I know it's a city. 
I recognize it's the Jewish temple and the headquarters of Judaism. I I recognize the fact that uh, it's where the crucifixion took place, which was just 40 days prior to this whole thing. I I recognize that uh, this is where the disciples were located at this point. Uh, In fact, in verse 4, he says, hey, don't depart from this place. So obviously, it's right where the disciples are at this very moment. In fact, it's where all the conflict is. Uh, it's right in the middle of the, the the issues of the day because, hey, we just crucified what we said was the Messiah. And, and of course, there's still a lot of turmoil happening because of this uh, with the high priests and the the, the the rulers of the synagogues and the temple and all that kind of stuff. All that's taking place in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, don't leave. Hey, Holy Spirit's coming and you're going to be a witness. Well, where, where is that going to start? Oh, right where I placed you in Jerusalem. Now, he says, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea. Well, what do we know about Judea? Well, if you were to open up a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia or even an atlas, uh, what you would find is that Judea uh, is basically the, uh, uh, the, the county or, in, say, an American concept would be the state in which Jerusalem resides. So here's Jerusalem. It sits within the province of Judea. So it's like a city within a state. And, uh, and, and as you begin to walk through this, Jesus is saying, all right, you're going to start where you're at in Jerusalem. And then, hey, that's going to expand to the entire uh, region of where you're in. And then he goes and says, hey, not only that, but also in Samaria. Well, what do we know about Samaria? Well, if you look it up, you find out it's, it's that province between Judea and Galilee. Uh, in fact, these people, the Samaritans, were hated by the Jews. And in fact, they would, they would at all costs try not to interact with them. In fact, they would walk around. They would take extra days to walk around and not even go through Samaria. Why? Because, oh, we just despise these people. Now, Jesus obviously interrupts that thing in John chapter 4 and talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. And there's a lot of significance there. But get, 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 get what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, disciples, you're going to start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria. And then he concludes by saying, and to the ends of the earth. So we're making some observations. Uh, and then we're just saying, okay, what, what's going on in the passage? Now, I just breeze through several key observations. Uh, one uh, Bible professor once noted that he had done some studies with his class on Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and they had found over 500 different observations just from this one verse, which is just, I mean, that's, that's mind-boggling. And uh, so, hey, you don't have to find that many. But again, you're, you're trying to grab a hold of the, the substance of what's going on in the passage. It may be helpful to do some word studies. For example, in this passage, you know, it'd be helpful to look up the word power and witnesses and, and, and then, hey, what do you know already about the Holy Spirit and these places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what does the ends of the earth mean? And obviously there's, there's this idea of the ends of the earth, meaning, hey, let's go to the very far reaches. Uh, hey, let's, hey, there shouldn't be a single person that we're not communicating with as you're looking at the context here. So as I'm making observations, I'm just, I'm, hey, I'm asking the passage, what does this thing say? What am I seeing taking place in this passage? Now, as I'm working through this and as I'm kind of working through my observations and I'm asking good questions and I'm, and I'm wrestling through, hey, what does this all mean? I begin to ask the key question for interpretation. What then does this mean? Now, again, I'm not asking what does this mean to me? I'm asking, hey, to the original audience, what's being said? How are they, what are they hearing? So in this context, here's Jesus. He's talking to the disciples. How would they have heard this? And again, you got to see this in light of the context. Jesus just rose from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. In verse 6, they ask him, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this, at this time? 
And he says, hey, that's not to be your focus. But let me tell you what your focus is to be. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall, re- you shall be witnesses to me to, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what is Jesus saying? Well, as I get into this and I, as I look at all my observations, it appears that the whole thrust of this thing is, hey, guys, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 4. Hey, it's coming soon. And we realize about a week later, Acts chapter 2 takes place, and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the outside God come to be inside, takes place. He says, hey, I don't want you to go evangelize yet. Hey, I, I don't want you just to run off into the streets. Hey, I, I don't want you just to try to do something in your own strength, in your own resource, in your own wisdom, in your own power. That you need something outside of yourself. Well, what is that? The Holy Spirit. And when that Holy Spirit comes and he invades your life, he, hey, you will receive power. Hey, he's going to enable this reality. Hey, everything I've been telling you for three years, he's going to begin to pull off. You know that life of a Christian I've been declaring and living in front of you? Yes, he is going to enable you to live that reality. Not only that, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. That, hey, you are going to be so filled with my spirit that it's going to really begin to, hey, everything you say, everything you begin to do, is going to put pressure upon the world around you. And of course, hey, where is that going to take place? Jesus says in the context, hey, start where you're at. Start in Jerusalem. Hey, guys, I know that there's difficulty. Hey, I know that they just crucified me just a month prior. But hey, I want you to be smack dab in the middle of this conflict, in the middle of this difficulty, right where I have you at this moment. Hey, don't just run to the best place. Hey, the grass is greener on the other side. Hey, that's fine. I want you to start where you're at. And I want you to be a witness for me exactly where you're at. And then allow that to expand to to the borders of that region that you're in. And then, hey, let that expand to, yes, even your bitter enemies, the Samaritans. And then let that continue to expand. And let that continue to expand until you are my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Wow, that is amazing. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. So the very last words of Jesus, he's looking at the disciples saying, hey, wait for the promise of the Father. Hey, don't worry about times and seasons. Hey, don't focus on, am I going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this point? Wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit is outpoured, woo, you will receive power and enablement. And hey, you will be witnesses. And I'm literally going to take you from right where you're at and expand your borders, expand your horizons. Yes, in the middle of difficulty. Yes, even to your enemies. And yes, even to the very uttermost parts of the earth. Wow, what a concept. Now you'll begin to notice that what I just did was give you the nugget. I just gave you the concept. Well, how do we come up with that idea? Oh, it's all the observations. And if I was to take that concept and and put it into a very simple phrase, I would say something like this, that I am not to just go and live Christianity on my own. The concept is, oh, would I allow the Holy Spirit to invade my life? And would I allow him to be my power, my resource, my enablement? And from that, would I be willing to be a witness, a declaration of truth in this world? And I recognize that it's going to start right where I'm at, and it's going to continually expand and expand and expand. And eventually, hey, that I'm I'm declared, I'm, I'm to be commissioned as a witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's the concept. Hey, start where you're at. Let your borders expand. Hey, hey, don't just try to do this in your own ability. Hey, be filled with the Spirit of God. And hey, this isn't just, hey, go die for your faith. Or isn't this, this isn't just, hey, go uh, stand up and throw a track at somebody. 
This is, hey, you are to be a witness, which is your life and your words and, and hey, the things that people see, the things that people don't see. This is, hey, when they're watching and when they're not watching, hey, would you be a declaration, a constant witness of the reality, the, the, the truth, uh, the life of Jesus, the word and the gospel? And that's going to put pressure upon the world around you. So question one, observations, what does the text say? And then I move into question two, what does this mean to the original audience? It's all about interpretation. Now, once I have that concept, that nugget, then I'm to come back and ask the final question, what then does this change? Which is all about application. How, how does this affect my life? Now, if I was to take my life and literally place it before the word of God and ask the honest question, does the reality of, of Acts chapter one, verse eight, is that being lived out in my life to the fullest extent Oh, I'm lacking. I don't know about you, but have you allowed the Holy Spirit to be the reality of your life? Are you trying to attempt Christianity in your own strength, in your own effort, in your own intellect, in your own resource? Or are you allowing the Spirit of God to be your power, your enablement? Are you being a witness unto Jesus? Hey, it's, it's an ownership thing. It's not just, well, I say good things on occasion. I pray before my meals. No, no, no. This is, hey, my whole life, my whole, hey, my, my every word is like centered in declaring. And I, I, hey, I'm putting pressure upon the world. Why? I'm a witness unto Jesus to my world. And if that's true, have you started where you're at in your personal Jerusalem? And, and, and if so, hey, are, are you allowing God to expand those borders to the Judea and, and even your enemies in Samaria and even the uttermost parts of the earth if he so presses you that direction? See, am I living out this verse or am I lacking? Now, what's so amazing about Bible study is even as God begins to continually mature and deepen and solidify truth in your life, you can easily come back to passages and just go, wow, I'm still lacking. God, I, I, I'm realizing that, hey, I've been trying to attempt Christianity in my own ability. Wow, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not being the witness down at my job like, like I, I, I feel like you're calling me to be. God, I just, I, I don't feel like as I'm down at the schoolhouse, I don't feel like I'm a declaration to my, hey, to my fellow students. Well, I might be willing, Jesus, to, to do my witness thing here in my hometown, but I don't want to go down to Africa. Or perhaps, God called me to Africa. I don't want to do my, I don't want to do missions and, and be a witness here in my hometown. That's ridiculous. See, would you allow the Holy Spirit to take the truth, the concept of this passage, and apply it specifically into your life. See, the reality of Bible study is that we should all be able to come to the Word and say, yep, that's what that passage means. Wow, yeah, that's what God is revealing. But see, the application may be different. See, how He speaks to you in that passage and how He speaks to me in the passage, hey, that may be different. And hey, that's okay. The application can change, but the concept should be the same. See, if the concept is, hey, you have nothing in front of you. Hey, you have nothing. Be not obsessed with anything but Jesus. Let your only obsession be Jesus. See, for someone, they may be convicted about video games. And this person's convicted about movies. And this person's convicted about shopping. And this person's convicted about sleep. And this person's convicted about cigarettes. See, the application of that may be different in each of our lives. But the truth, the concept doesn't change. Can I encourage you? Don't let this study thing just be something you listen on a podcast or down on your down at the church on Sunday mornings. Hey, hey, don't let Bible study just be this thing that's like, oh yeah, that's a great thing if I could do it. 
See, the author himself, the one who wrote the word, lives inside of your life if you're a believer. And he is wanting to speak to you through his word. Hey, would you allow God to speak to you? Hey, would you get into the word and just set yourself before the word? And again, just walk through these three simple questions. Observation, interpretation, and application. What does it say? What does it mean to the original audience? And what does it change in my life? And I promise you, if you would do that, God is going to take his word and make it alive in your life. And you're going to find that your life begins to be transformed. Oh, that's what I long for you. That's what I'm just desiring for God to do in your life. Mm. Would you be captured and captivated by Jesus and his word? Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including uh, some great resources and articles to help you in this process of Bible study, I would encourage you to visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 23 for episode number 23. Now, until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.